0: Well, you know, and I think you talk about the brute force part. So when you look at it from their supply chain standpoint, it's all about just figuring out those keywords that are gonna, those key phrases that are the, how do I say this, uh, where their most pressing need is. What's their biggest challenge? What's their biggest headache right now? And there's not an easy way to do it. That really is just, uh, I'm gonna do a SWOT analysis on this entire industry and I'm gonna learn the entire industry. I'm Ashley McFarlane, a nonprofit executive living in Duluth, Minnesota, and you are listening to the Vance Girl Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk with Alex Burkhart. I met Alex while doing a tour of America's Central Port. This is where container ships that travel up and down the Mississippi River can on and offload cargo. I knew that cargo was moving on the Mississippi River, but I had absolutely no idea how massive the scope was until I went on a field trip and got to see the facility for myself. Alex and I really hit it off. He is a soft-spoken guy, but has an exceptional entrepreneur's mind where he thinks about how can we find and attract new customers? How can I meet new people and build relationships where they want to do business with us? And I just really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. We're going to head to that interview, but Alex and I had a unique conversation because it's not often that I meet other people that are doing marketing and public relations and communications work. And so you'll hear me mention a little bit about the work that I do that I don't really talk about on the podcast much. This is the work that I do with Articulate Ventures, and we have just a few clients. We're always focused on just helping one or two clients at any given time, help them build into the community. How can they find the right people that they wanna build relationships with? How can they build out their ability to offer services in the community that they're in? And how do they get their name out there in a way that makes the community happy that they're there? So we do this work, but we don't talk about it all that much. And if you'd like to learn more, you can just go to articulate.ventures. That's it. There's no .com on it or anything like that. Just articulate.ventures. And you can learn a little bit more about the work that Ben Anderson and I do as consultants. So without further ado, we're going to head to the interview with my man, Alex, Alex Burkhart. Burkhardt, Burkhart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I came down to America's Central Port. The St. Louis Bank was doing field trips around to different parts of our economy that you just don't see very often, and you were the guy leading the tour. I was stunned by how much um, barge traffic happens on the Mississippi River, how much um, cargo moves on and off, and uh, you were the guy leading that thing, so I thought I'd bring you on. What uh, You've worked at the port for a couple of years,
0: yeah, uh, about
1: a little under three
0: years right now. How in the world did you find a job where you do strategic marketing for a port? Um, uh, kind of fun story there. The uh, I was actually trying to land the port as a client for my own consulting practice at the time. Um, you know, I I love networking, and uh, pretty much I'm trying to think of the line of people here. Um spiritual director, introduced me to the head of uh, economic development for the Chamber of Commerce in St. Louis. I remember having a sit-down conversation with him, and he said, uh, just, you know, I hate to ask for free advice, but I'm going to ask you for free advice. What would you do for the St. Louis region? Just uh, from an economic development standpoint, how would you position us, and what story would you tell that we're not already telling right now? And instead of giving an answer right away, I started asking more questions. And I asked, uh, well, I've always been curious what role does the Mississippi River play in the overall economic development and like us bringing manufacturing to St. Louis? And he looked up at me and said, He just, the fact that I had, like, that I asked that question in the first place was enough of a, uh, I guess, realization for him that I knew what I was talking about when it came to transportation and that link back to manufacturing and jobs for a region. So he put me on to uh, some type of meeting had to do with container on barge uh, on the Mississippi River and it was a just you talk about very unique niche meeting uh, only about 20 people in there and uh, I met the I met Mary Lamy she's the executive director for the St. Louis Freightways organization told her what I do um, in that meeting and then she said you know everyone in this room really needs what you do just go around and tell everybody what you do Uh, met Dennis Welmsmeyer for the first time told my you know I grew up in Edwardsville I grew up on the east side and I'd never actually heard of America Central Port um you know sounds incredible uh, I'd love to learn more about you guys and I started our you know our relationship right then and there um first time I came out for a meeting with them uh, was offered a job and um they, they had a marketing position open at the time and I was, you know, politely declined. Uh, I really wanted to, you know, make sure I was at a point where, well, you're an entrepreneur, right? Right, Like, right.
1: like so we'll get into it. People yeah. have no idea they're talking to the guy that is like, not only do you enjoy networking, yep. but like you're incredibly creative with this, which is why right. I've, I've been so interested. <laughs> We've hung out a couple of times. Yeah. So I can imagine uh, America's Central Port is a governmental body, right? It's Correct. the group on, and we can talk more about it, but. It would be a bit of a of a stretch for somebody like you with your entrepreneurial spirit to just you know
0: go take a government job. Correct, correct, very, very, very correct. It was uh, uh, for me to do that. It was a, it's a bit of a life life decision, and uh, it had to be the right strategic choice, and that's ultimately what it ended up being. Was uh, nine months later, uh, you know, came back said if you're willing to negotiate and talk about terms um, and what I'm going to do for the organization that I'm more than happy to take this on. And they were, and they met my terms and, uh, the, the rest is history. Um, and as far as me taking it on, um, and still like maintaining that entrepreneur spirit, the real reason I took on the role of the port is there's simply so much opportunity from an insights and knowledge standpoint, uh, very interested in like the supply chain aspect transportation aspect, manufacturing, how all that works on a national and global scale. And being at the port, I really do have the access to so much tribal knowledge that you can't just you can't find on the internet. They don't, you know, write books about this. You have to be in that industry to understand how it operates.
1: I mean, I'm totally with you. The the idea about communications, the problem is if you go out on your own and you're just like, I'm going to be a generalist in communications. Then you're like looking around and you're like, oh, who can I go that needs my help communicating? And I think what ends up happening is most people go after the same businesses over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But if you get into like a tiny niche where you say like this is a group of people that are super focused on what they do, whether it's chemical manufacturing or transportation or agriculture, right. then then the amount of people doing communications in those space is way lower. The quality of service that they get is is just, you know, it, it, you're just not competing against um, the mainstream And it, it sets you up for, um, a way to specialize, but like most young people, most people, unless you're introduced into that path, like you're describing, finding that niche, Hmm. you just don't even know that those businesses exist. You don't even know what the problems are that you could try and help them solve. Exactly. So, uh, tell me a little bit about America's central port. Why should anybody care at all about the Mississippi river and the, and the port (laughs) and the, and the cargo that flows on there?
0: Oh man, that's a, that's a fun question. Uh, I'll go back to just one thing you said earlier about just the number of barges that are on the Mississippi river. I posted this on LinkedIn a couple days ago. I thought it was an interesting stat. So, uh, this is according to like 2009 numbers. So I I thought it was safe to say this, but, uh, about 46,000 barges interchange with lock 27, which is right where it's the last lock on the Mississippi. And it's the lock right next to America central port. And the reason I bring that up is that, um, The uh, without that lock system and without the chain of rocks canal there that the Army Corps of Engineers put in place, you'd have to that would block off access to the entire Upper Mississippi. There's a um, that lock and dam system. You have about 29 lock and dams there uh, that they basically interchanges a 420 foot stairwell of water from Minneapolis all the way to St. Louis, but then you also have. Right in St. Louis, you have seventeen point five miles of chain of rocks under the Mississippi River that they had to create a canal to uh, go past that.
1: It's essentially like the slowest waterfall in the world, right? Correct, like it's, correct, like correct. the chain of rocks, when you describe that, like you're like, I don't know why that matters. But yep. if you go look at the Mississippi, it's dropping a huge amount of distance, except for it's over such a long yep. space that it made the water so thin, you know, so the depth so low that you couldn't bring a barge that's loaded down with coal Correct. Correct. or corn or soybeans or anything like that. So you're, the port is right at the very, la- the very first one if you're going north or the very Correct. last one if you're taking your cargo south.
0: Right. And then on the point of taking it south, um, you have the um, – uh, it takes about 30 minutes to interchange through a lock and dam system. So the reason that St. Louis is becoming known as the ag coast of America really is that it's the best place to offload all of your agriculture commodity, uh, because you have that, it's your economy of scale. You're gaining the most for your buck on that barge transportation, all the way down South to the Gulf, um, and not having to wait on, uh, maintenance at lock and dams, or just wait time in general standing behind barges. Um, the uh, but back to that 46,000 number, if you didn't have the entire system that exists, uh, you'd have another something like 600,000 plus rail cars or 3.2 million trucks that would be needed to transport the same amount of commodity to wherever it needs to go. So uh, I thought that was kind of a little cool stat about uh, why that infrastructure is needed. Uh, back to your question about why people should care about the port, um, beyond just the Mississippi River access. I feel like a lot of people that are in barge transportation already—they're pretty familiar with how barge transportation works. What I don't think is out there and clear is the our access to rail, uh, as well as just the fact that we have about 900 acres of our 1,200-acre campus is a former military base that's been, f- you know, for the most part, fully updated for industrial users. So, um, you know, we have a little under 2 million square feet of warehouse available, high-voltage power options. Uh, You know, we have Mississippi River right there, so water, you know, you can do 2 million gallons of water a day. Um, There's just a significant amount of uh, high-grade industrial infrastructure there um, to be able to meet, like, small manufacturing needs. And then on the rail side, uh, what I've noticed recently is that Uh, I guess a recent epiphany of mine is related to specifically chemical manufacturers. Um, and I say that because the, our warehouses do have a height restriction of 22 feet. Um, so that kind of restricts what can go in there. There's obviously column spacing and things of that nature, but the sheer fact that we have so much rail on our property and it's all in one location. So take a, um, Typical chemical manufacturer, like a midsize chemical manufacturer, say like a $200 million operator versus, say, philip 66, you know, billion dollar company, they're going to have a significant amount of rail on their property. Whereas that $200 million player, more likely than not, is just going to have a spur, like a rail spur, that comes into their facility off of a main line. Well, in that one spur, they're going to be limited to the number of cars that can fit on that track space. Right. So maybe that's 10 cars and they get, say, two switches a week from the class one railroad. That means production wise, they're going to be limited to like 20 cars a week. We're at America Central Port because we have so we have about 20 miles of track on that one property and that we don't have have plenty of space to um, like interchange on that track. So you could have a warehouse where you only have maybe technically four spots outside your property, but you could interchange 100 cars per week. So your production value can go or your production output can go significantly higher. And for people that like aren't in manufacturing or don't
1: move things around, this is like, well, these are like tiny details. But it's a it's a phenomenal thing because you're talking about you could be bringing in chemical from anywhere in the world. Right. It could come into the Gulf of Mexico You bring it up through the Mississippi in in Louisiana and cart it all the way up there, and then you can only get it off of those cargo ships drip by drip by drip. If you don't have some port that allows you to pull it all off of the, the barges and then put it on the trains, and then the trains can take it anywhere in the United States. And that includes... Not just going east on the other side of the Mississippi because you're on the Illinois side, so Correct. right right now we're in St. Louis we're on the Mississ- or on the on the west side of the river right. and uh, it's just a fascinating thing and I don't think I really would have appreciated it until we went to see that tour mm-hmm. and it's just absolutely mind-blowing <laughs> how much stuff is. is moving. and I had spent time so I used to be a deckhand. and I, I was worked on the west coast. Mm-hmm. so I've seen the port of LA, I've been down in San Diego and all of that cargo. People see it because you can see the cranes from so far away. It's kind of a part of the landscape. So you kind of right. – I, I think people on the West Coast that live near those things kind of have a sense for how – that there is cargo going on. On the Mississippi, it's totally hidden. Right. So people have no idea. that You have this river here. You're like, ah, eh, it's the big muddy. You know, we occasionally have songs. I think they used to do river bar you – know, yep. you know, river ferries there. Mark Twain talks about it. But that's all they know about it, not realizing – huge volumes of uh, you know grain is moving there coal chemicals all these things and it's hilarious your your point earlier in the beginning of the story where you were like you know I pointed out to the guy I wanted to know more about the Mississippi River and how we're using it because I would say if you asked people like tell me the top 10 things around St. Louis virtually no one would mention the Mississippi River despite the fact that it's right there
0: right correct.
1: Cause nobody uses it, right? Yeah. Like, no, no, like you don't go down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're
0: your everyday person doesn't, but yeah. <laughs> and so, um, uh,
1: what's gone on since you got to the, to the port, you know, you, you got there and you were supposed
0: to do strategy. Well, how did this R- work out? Uh, I'd say it's worked out pretty well so far, or at least that's what my uh, leadership team tells me. Um, well put it this way we uh, and i can't take full credit for us so our you know frank papa our sales manager does a phenomenal job for us um but uh we started at 70% uh capacity so about a 30% um vacancy rate in our warehousing and that was basically our biggest challenge was we need to fill this um we're currently at 97% i believe so uh i'd say we're doing pretty well um uh, you know, after that, I think within my first six months, uh, brought on a, uh, pretty much landed my first like warehouse, uh, deal. It was, a, uh, uh, for, uh, I, I don't know it two year with multiple options, basically like a 10 year agreement, uh, on 43,000 square feet of space at three thirty five. So not a bad deal. Uh, great organization, uh, Reinhardt electric and, uh, Happy to have him at the port.
1: It was cool, man. Like, we were driving around, and we were seeing these different companies that are there, and, like this is something I don't know how you solve this problem in the United States because just like Mm. we were talking about with communications people, right? Like if you're a generalist, you only know the companies that you see the billboards of or you drive past on the interstate, but at your, at your port, right? There's Mm. people that all they do is they press out screws and like really specialized uh, (laughs) screws and bolts and those kinds of things. And then right across the way, there's a guy making super high end telescopes and he's like, you know, milling the glass to be absolutely perfect in their multi-million dollar scopes. It's just a funny thing that goes on because I think people can get down on the United States and we can be like, oh, you know, all I see is the gloom and doom that's on on TV, not realizing like every day there are thousands of people going to work producing
0: things that we need all around us we just don't see it when you're in the city correct and, and uh i blame it on you know like the fact that all the buildings are like they're squares and rectangles you can't see anything <laughs> there, there's there's no there's no character on the outside of the building that says anything they're typically no signs because they don't want to be bothered by see like you know cold calling and salespeople. uh so there's really nothing to tell you that there's employees there other than the cars that are in the parking lot so you know, Frank at the port always told me, he's like, a good way to judge a building and know that there's productivity is to look at the type of cars in the parking lot. And uh, he's like, that'll tell you if it's, uh, give you a good idea. That's probably a manufacturer with good paying jobs in there if you're seeing a bunch of, you know, Mustangs and whatnot in the parking lot. Um, so I thought that that's was, That's probably, that's a good point. I, yeah. I, I
1: remember coming away from the experience of the port tour mm-hmm. feeling like, energized because I think that there's, I I don't, and like, I don't know that we should have some, you know, emotional campaign out there. That's like, (laughs) look, other people are going to work in manufacturing (laughs) things. You should feel good about it. But like when you drive across the Mississippi from St. Louis, Mm -hmm. particularly if you're on, you know, like the 6455 thing. So this is for anybody that doesn't know it. If if you're driving, if you want to drive right past the arch and, you know, past Cardinal stadium, you're driving um, across the Mississippi, then you hit East St. Louis and it's just an industrial wasteland. And yeah. at one time, that was filled. It was teeming with all sorts of business. There were packing houses. There were chemical manufacturers. A bunch of Monsanto work got done down there back when they were a chemical manufacturer. But now it doesn't exist. And it just looks like a like a rusted waste bin. So my conception of the other side of the river was that nothing was happening over there. right? If you go yeah. far enough, yeah. you find an Amazon warehouse. But then your impression <laughs> of that is somebody is manufacturing stuff over in China and then they're just storing it here before it gets shipped out. But the port showed me like, no, 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 no,
0: no. There is a lot more building going on than, than we even realize. Yeah. No, the significant amount of manufacturing. Um, I've talked to other employers that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the state of Illinois and the doing business in the state of Illinois. Uh, I think what keeps people here really is that workforce potential, uh, talk to many employers on the manufacturing, construction side, and the like. Uh, that that's their main uh, reason for staying. That's why they stay and, in
1: Illinois, or that's why they stay in this region.
0: Uh, I'd say this region in general, but the ones that we do have in Illinois, same thing. There, uh, there's no, there's no real point in moving. You know, their workforce lives here, and uh, for them to grow, there's enough of a workforce here. To and, and the
1: crazy thing about your port is because it was an old uh, army barracks on yep. the or army base really the um there's also like actual housing there so you guys right, in right. addition to doing <laughs> ports and rail spurs and getting shipped container ships unloaded and loaded you also are running like all these apartment buildings <laughs> where like there's people there there's yeah. schools there's i mean it, it it's like yeah. its own little world over there
0: yeah we uh basically any way that we can possibly generate money you know what that means um but yeah uh we've got 150 apartments uh uh, pretty much 100% capacity at this moment. We just, you know, we do a decent job marketing those and they're pretty high quality for where the location is. Um, but yeah. Let's talk about um, how business moves that you've
1: seen. So you're working on a part of the, uh, the business world where most people don't know. But occasionally somebody says, hey, I need a whole bunch of warehouse space or i need the uh, access to the mississippi river most people don't have a concept of that right but every once in a while a company puts out
0: like a like a like request a bid, a bid right? Right, right how does all this work gotcha gotcha um so uh from a like it's uh it's a world uh, called economic development uh so you're pretty much uh anything as low as maybe three million dollar investment all the way up to a four billion dollar investment and your prospects, they're typically anonymous until you finally get a meeting face-to-face with them. Um, but it's, So they put out like a thing saying
1: this is what we're looking for on the specs. This is the amount correct. of space. We need this much electricity. We need this much blah, right. blah, blah, blah. But you don't even know who they are. Correct. Unless it's, you're Amazon.
0: Yeah, it's typically uh, – yeah, right. Amazon is very public about it. But it's typically named uh, Project something or another project. Uh, there's, there's some code name project assigned to it, and then that's given to the states that they're interested in at the, the state level. Then that gets disseminated down to all the economic developers throughout the region. So St. Louis has Greater St. Louis Inc. and Alliance STL, and they represent the entire St. Louis MSA with sites in both Missouri and Illinois. And then many cities also have their own economic developers, so like Alton, Granite City uh, America central port would be me. And I represent the 200 square mile district that makes up the port district. And then there's other ones throughout, uh, the region state Illinois state of Missouri. Um, so how that disseminates down is that we, uh, sorry, vibrated phone. Um, the, uh, basically we just fill out whatever they're asking. It's much like an RFP that you would, you know, how your pit it's, It's less on the pitching side at that point. really is, do you meet what we have? Like, they'll get people that respond and, like, just submit whatever site they have, even if it doesn't hit the requirements. So half the battle is just making sure uh, you stand out as, yes, we fit exactly what you're asking for. You want rail? Telling them there's actually rail there. It's not five miles away. Uh, And that's that's a whole other problem in, like, real estate industry is that – rail served real estate means different things to different people you know that can mean that there's rail technically near the property but the class one carrier hasn't approved for that rail extension to happen uh so that's and then there's rail served like america central port where no the spur is on the property construction's already been taken care of you have service that's rail served so uh, that's just a little tidbit detail there um, so anyway, once it gets to the economic developers, they go through that finalized process, they sort through the sites, and then uh, if you're in that top amount, they'll start doing site visits, and then it's just a uh, kind of competition of incentives, uh, workforce numbers, and what's the best bang for the buck, and strategic outlook for that company to locate in that position. It's funny to think about attracting different
1: companies into your city, right? Like that there's like some sort of whining and dining that goes on, who takes responsibility for that? Is it just yeah. the the one company and you were mentioning the different economic authorities. Right. It's funny because until I met you and and heard about this, those things seemed like such an opaque business, right? It's like w- what do you do all day, you know? Like <laughs> but you're trying to find yep. businesses that want to move or are totally like open to it. Right. bring him in and showing him a good time because th- that's the
0: representative of the city. Right, and, and a lot of it. So, you, I mean, you got to think about your uh, again looking at the Mississippi River as one asset, but what are your main assets as St. Louis? Uh, not the airport. I'll tell you <laughs> that. That's that's. Uh, I I don't know how
1: we fix that problem, but it is not the airport. I don't know about that. I mean, there's
0: there's there's potential
1: there. There's potential, sure, but it doesn't exist right now.
0: Okay. I, I can't comment on that. <laughs> uh, the uh, No, I met with, uh, with Rhonda there, their executive director, kind of learned a little insight about that, how that works. I do know that uh, on the commercial side, it really does. It, they're very similar to us as a port authority. I, I had no idea about that. I don't know if you knew that. No. Uh-uh. Uh, so, yeah, just a learning aspect on the fact of them is that um so all their decisions do have to go through like the board of aldermen in st louis um and then their funding is uh very much tied to the same way like we go after grants so for like their commercial base like for us to do more uh to grow as an airport you're, you're mainly looking at like the commercial cargo side as well as the passenger side and um it seems to be that a lot of the traffic that's coming out, like the business aspect of Lambert, is related to uh, like leisure travel of people uh, from St. Louis going elsewhere. Whereas, like compared to like say Nashville, for example, Nashville, right, is like a destination kind of city from a travel standpoint. And yes, we get that with St. Louis, but is I mean the I feel like the argument can be made um, it's kind of a chicken like or we, egg thing like is we, is we, right? Yeah. Like we need to, I, I wouldn't put the full blame on the, like put it this way. I wouldn't put the full blame on the airport. It's how do we, it comes back to that economic development decision of who do we actually target to, uh, that makes sense based on St. Louis's profile or the greater St. Louis area's profile. And on the business side, um, I don't know. I'm, so, like, I, I spend a after. lot
1: of time in yeah. that airport, right? Because I'm right. flying all over the country. Yeah. And, and uh, architecturally, it's a really cool place. But there's right. two different terminals, like it's got some really interesting character to it. Yeah. But there's something that happens, like, as soon as you're moving throughout that, and as you're describing, it, I'm like, Oh, that's what it is. It's decisions being made by committee, right? It's like, an ordinary business wouldn't th- make the decisions that they're making these are made decisions being made where you're accounting for many many different interests as opposed to one entity saying I, w- I want to see this uh, right. it's, be it's, realized. it's not
0: a private entity mm-hmm. yeah if, if it were I imagine like that that comes with any government entity is that you have to go through a checks and balances system of figuring out you know how all that's gonna work so uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, I
1: know I'm putting you on yeah. the spot, but let's uh, let's change the subject. So, yeah. um, one you were talking with my executive producer Ben Anderson, and he pulled out after he talked with you, he pulled out of his wallet a card that you had, oh boy, which was uh, <laughs> uh, free coffee with Alex. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's interesting. He's offering coffee, but that actually wasn't what you were doing. You were offering coffee, and then you would write an article about the experience. Correct. Is that right? right? So, yeah. talk more about that. How did that come about? Uh, you
0: know, I I think it's similar to like podcast world in the sense that uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, like this plays incredibly on my pride, so I, I do something similar. But uh, really, I started it for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, I saw somebody else doing it, so I kind of copied her idea. Um, but uh, I wanted to like write like start writing and actually have a reason to write and get, just, you just get better at writing. So I started this back in like grad school. Um, and I also wanted to have like a portfolio for writing cause I was looking at marketing jobs way back when, right? Uh, the other aspect there was I wanted a way to gain uh, interviews with certain people on a faster basis. So sometimes you can reach out and just say, hey, let's grab coffee. Uh, but it doesn't always work, um, you know, Typically, you need a little bit more of a carrot to get that first meeting, and uh, it's not that I like want anything from these people other than just to learn what whatever it is they do. So, uh, you know, I had interest from a like healthcare standpoint. I really wanted to understand uh, pretty much like how the healthcare continuum works and what all the different branches are and everything. So, I needed someone who had. Uh, pretty much a high-level executive level with a hospital system. I found one. I reached out to her, and I asked her, and she said yes. So it it's stuff like that. And, you know, uh, uh, it's always a positive article. I always let them look at it before they see it. It's, I'm not going to say anything. It's not like a journalistic, you know, inter- yeah. <laughs> interrogation. <laughs> um, but, no, it's just a kind of fun way to continue networking. And uh, in a weird way, you could say that I – I landed the port via that blog, because the, uh, the, chain, the chain of people that I met and how I met them, uh, I remember the interview I had with, uh, it was Elizabeth Westoff. she was the uh, director of marketing for the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and uh, I met her via Twitter, because I used to do a bunch of networking on Twitter, uh, of all places. Met her there, invite her to a coffee blog, do that. And then years after years, I mean, she introduced me and my uh, spiritual director, spiritual director Jim Alexander with the Greater St. Louis Inc. And then uh, Port and the rest is history. It's amazing how it, it, like I I'm, I'm surprised
1: that how easy it is to get a hold of people. Like it, for for me, like people will write my um, Twitter and DMs. Right, right. And and like I absolutely love this and they'll mm-hmm. be like I don't want to take up too much of your time but just like you had right. said about the the ego thing right you've you've produced something
0: right. you put
1: it out into the world you don't know what people are going to respond to it so somebody shows up and they're like I listened to this thing and I thought this about it it could even be a negative thing in fact yeah. I would say probably I've, I've probably developed better relationships with people that have told me things that they didn't like about what I was saying because I'm like, hey, there's a person with an opinion. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's like one of those things that it once you get over the initial fear of reaching out to somebody, you wouldn't believe how many things can, can open up for you. I used to um, – uh, when, when I was first starting my company, Articulate Ventures, mm-hmm. I used to uh, give out a weekly award called the Simplicity Award. And uh, I would find somebody that I thought took something really complicated and made it simple to understand. And the award was like a picture of a puppy with a ribbon on it, right? But it was (laughs) a blog written about why they did what they did. And um, I'm not even entirely sure I thought through just how effective this would be. But it exploded, right? Because you'd have people like (laughs) I did one for this guy who has a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day, which now people know. But at the time, the guy had maybe 10,000 subscribers. He went around and told everybody that he won an award. And then I, you notice, like, hey, if I keep doing this, more and more people, like, it's not just writing a blog about him. It's like, hey, somebody recognized me for things I'm doing, and then they go share it, and then more people come. It's an interesting thing. All you have to do is have a little bit of ingenuity and put a little bit of work into expressing what it is that you noticed or what right. kind of experience you had. And it really has a powerful impact on building out your network. Yeah, no, for, for sure. So you mentioned the spiritual director a couple mm-hmm. of times. This is your spiritual director or one just in general? Uh no, my
0: spiritual director.
1: So tell me more about that. Not everybody
0: that I talk with says, you know, makes reference to their spiritual makes, director. Makes reference. Uh well, changed my life, so <laughs> there's that. Uh no, it's uh Monsignor Eugene Morris. Uh he does the uh Latin Mass at uh, Saint Gregory, I believe. I I may have gotten that wrong. He might. He may be mad at me for that. But uh, no, great guy and just honestly, uh, I knew I wanted a spiritual. So I'm I'm born and raised Catholic, and uh, pretty much what did it for me was uh, I had just gotten done doing like training, like personal training for the first time in my life. Lost a ton of weight. but what I realized was the just the amount of coaching that came into that, and that I didn't know what I didn't know about fitness, health, and everything else. And I saw the same thing in my faith, and I was like, man, I just really need someone who like gets me, understands where I'm at level wise, and then can just tell me, here's here's what you should read, here's what you should focus on, here's here's a map, this is what you need to do next. So I reached out to I contact Elizabeth Westoff who. Now is I mean, career wise in the Catholic world of things, she she's pretty pretty impressive woman. And uh she hooked me up with Eugene Morse. So
1: And so when you describe it as a as a map, do you feel like you um notice a distance that you've traveled, like a place where you were to a place where you are?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Tell yeah. me more about that. Definitely. Um hmm. <laughs> um just uh like full on understanding. So uh I guess I don't normally talk about this, but the uh um as a Catholic not having like a full on relationship with Christ, um, how do I get to that? Um the I remember the uh first meeting I had with Monsignor, it was he's like, Hm, okay, uh do you pray? And I'm like and he goes, That's a no, okay. <laughs> he's like we need, uh, you need to pray right, you know, like daily. And then he's like, do you go to church? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, how about you start with praying regular, like daily, and then go, just go to church on Sundays and, and then we'll check in after a month. Um, so started there, started with the rosary. So I now say at least one rosary a day, uh, and then, uh, go to church on Sundays or at least try to. And, um, honestly, after I remember, uh, We'll put it this way. So, um, when I met Monsignor, I met Monsignor, and then uh, a month later, um, I was with, like, when I was doing my own consultancy, I lost uh, my, pretty much my clients. So, uh, contracts that I had had all expired. And then the last one, I was in a position with a former client of mine uh, where I basically, contract got terminated, was offered a full-time job. I did not want the full-time job. I wanted to like stay with my business and I had to make a decision. Okay, zero contracts, zero income coming in. What do I do next? Do I take this job or do I say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to try and do my own business. So I said, screw it. And I want to know that I've put everything I possibly can into making this work before I basically quit and go full time. So this is the real story of how I got the port was, um, I took that on. I knew I had nine months of income, like savings and whatnot. Uh, and I remember, so all that happened, uh, like two days after I met Monsignor, and then, uh, I kept up that prayer life and I remember meeting him a month later and he's like, how are you doing? You look amazing. Like, you just look like lighter. And I go, you know, what's crazy is, uh, like career wise, it's, uh, it's very stressful, but like, I feel better than I've ever, like nothing, nothing matters anymore. Like, this is like, I feel fine. I feel like everything's going to be fine. There's nothing that I can't take on. So, uh, I kind of credit my prayer life to that entire journey Um, but yeah, i spent the next nine months, basically networking, 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 just trying, like I had at the time when I landed the port, um, or like met them and started uh, going through that process of landing them as a client, uh, had a few other, I had plenty of other lines in the fire. Like if the port hadn't planned out, like I did have other ones lined up. Um, but, uh, I kind of look at that as a success in of itself because, I, I didn't land him as a client, but uh, I had nine months to better my I guess position and I did pretty significantly from where I was at before uh, yeah, yeah I mean I think the
1: the inner life of people like where where faith comes from, what is the mm. voice that tells you you should take this chance or let this chance pass or this is something yep. is such an interesting thing and it's so like um it's so deeply embedded into literally everyone, yeah. right? Like there, there are no NPCs, the non-player characters. Like if mm-hmm. you're looking around, you're, you see a person, unless they are completely drugged out of their minds, they have this conversation going on in their head at all times, both with themselves and with some other being or whatever. So yep. these conversations about how did people get in touch with whatever that inner voice is, is one that's, one of my favorites. in fact, on the podcast we often talk about it being somebody's uh daemon, right? Like what is mm. that voice yeah. that you have a conversation with in your head? But it isn't really necessarily like um like a like an actual voice. It's just something, right? Like I you know, you're right now having a dialogue in your head in the same way that I am. Right. Who is it that you're talking with? And then how is it that you can funnel that into being something that's productive and i think whether that's you know the catholic faith or some other faith i don't i don't know the right way but i i am super interested in figuring out how other people commune with that voice or those voices right so tell me about, um, your, uh, your work and you know, before you got into this, you did some really interesting entrepreneurial stuff. You, um, right. have some interesting ways of brute forcing and figuring out like, Hey, who would be a good person to reach out to? So can you talk about some of your, your strategies for finding yeah. new, new people to work with? Business
0: development. Um, uh, so yeah, one of my recent ones is, uh. We talk about the brute force aspect. It's using Google Maps to canvas entire regions, uh, and a lot of this comes back to the, my experience in the real estate side now. But uh, being able to look at a business from an aerial or like a, a building, and just by doing that, pulling up their website and then really anything I see about the outside, we go about the we talk about the cars that are in the parking lot. You know. Um, Obviously I'm like going off of data that like the Google satellite took a picture that day. So if they happen to be off or, <laughs> you know, I might not get a good shot, but for the most part, um, we'll talk about like in the rail serve real estate side, side of things, uh, you know, lists that I've developed for the port, um, or every single rail served facility and tenant and business in the St. Louis MSA. Uh, I also have that for, um, I'm basically doing almost the entire United States. I'm targeting cities across the United States and building that out for the port, but ultimately building that out for St. Louis in general. Um, and I say St. Louis in general from a site selection standpoint. So like, if it doesn't work for the port, uh, it's in our best interest to bring it to somewhere in St. Louis or the greater St. Louis area.
1: So you're taking a look at these photographs. You're saying, "Hey, that looks like a pretty big square box." That uh, from from up top, right? And then you know, who, who is this company? What is it that they're
0: producing? And then, are they looking for space? Are they right? Well, you know, it, a lot of it comes back to something you said earlier. Of uh, unless you're unless you're in that niche, unless your uh, your parents did something like did that industry before, you don't really know. That that business exists. Half of like business development to me is just figuring out what companies are actually in your own backyard. So I remember one of my biggest pet peeves of getting out of college was uh, you're not really educated about that. You're told about the big guys, you know, like everybody knows Monsanto and Purina and you know Boeing and all that is in St. Louis. Great, fantastic. What if you if you can't get a job with them, you're left thinking, well, what are my other options, and how do you even find the companies that. Like you don't know what you're, you don't know what you're googling. You don't know what you're actually looking for. Uh, and interestingly other- enough, those companies don't know how to find you either. Correct,
1: right? Like there's this weird gap. Yeah. And like you're right, the big boys all know how to how to like go out and and right. take the cream right off the top. But if you're running like a bolt manufacturing company, you don't have somebody sitting around being like, "This is the way we're going to get our next crop of right. bolt manufacturers." Well,
0: and you don't realize just when you think about uh, just supply chains, I mean, uh, one way to think of it really is just start thinking of industry supply chains in general. So if you're trying to identify niches that make sense for you to target, uh, you know, say you do a lot of work in the PR and the marketing and the agriculture side, what's gonna make sense from a, you know, like other clients you should go after that are gonna see your work with that person or with that entity as relevant to what they do, you start to look at their supply chain and then just map it backwards. And uh, you'll find out that, uh, you know, like grain co-ops um, are practically membership. I mean, large membership bases. And to think that they don't need to update any of their marketing and re-engage their pro- like their Oh, I their get own to talk membership, with these all the time. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a huge opportunity. I've seen trends, especially on the agriculture side, uh, like your... Uh, I think we're going to see more and more of this in the future, but, um, this is a long shot, but, <laughs> uh, so a while back was it Walmart, um, basically the large retailer side gobbling up more and more of the supply chain and like dominating markets that have never had to compete with anybody else. So I think about, uh, the farm co-ops that do more than just grain they do like agricultural equipment things of that nature oh yeah or chemicals uh, or chemicals or, yeah, and whatnot right. mm-hmm. um well uh the re- like to me the there are
1: people right now listening to the show right, that are right. in grain co-ops so you don't have to slow right, this right. down yeah go, right. okay, go, okay go hard man
0: but the uh you know if amazon can figure out amazon or walmart figures out the supply chain aspect to being able to deliver those products to you like to those rural areas pretty much on demand. And it seems like that's where they are inching towards. Those are markets to me that are not going to be like, they're not going to be able to compete. And they've been, um, because they've been in that strong niche and it's, there's no one else. No one else has been trying to enter that market. Uh, I've they, got a hilarious story for
1: that. you on this part. So okay. in,
0: in, uh, in, in Monsanto, right.
1: Okay. So Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. When I was getting trained, they they sent me out all over the place. So I would get to go on these experiences where you'd meet, you know, people doing genetics or seed mm-hmm. chemistry or whatever. And one time we go out to a guy that he's a seed salesman, but not a Monsanto seed salesman, right? So right. he's an independent broker that all that gets monsanto seeds and he can sell them so you know he's selling dekalb and um and asgrow and and so uh i'm i'm listening to him talk he's in his farm shop there's a couple of us there and i raise my hand and very innocently ask you know why does somebody need to come to you like can't they just order the bag of seed on the internet and the guy, like it was as though it was the first time anybody had ever presented this idea to him, <laughs> right? And so his face drops, and he's like, uh, "I don't know, is that possible?" And all the handlers that were around me right. were like, "No, no, not possible, <laughs> no, not possible." <laughs> and like, I, I realized instantly what I had done. But I mean, this is a reality. So yeah. for people that aren't aware of how co-ops work, what they do is you have, you know, you see a green grain elevator. You got people bring their grain in and they sell it to the co-op, but they get a special rate. They're a member of it. And then the co-op pools their um, buying power together. So they say, hey, we have you know, 50 farm families, and they're going to buy this much glyphosate, they're going to buy this much fungicide, they're going to, you know, buy th- this equipment. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we go to these various um, suppliers, and we will do bulk purchasing, right? And then you get the better prices for that. But you're exactly right, right? Like if, if you can come in and cut out the middleman um, that makes that price, and typically, by the time it gets to the co-op, there's like two different things. Um, and they have a way to digitally get the advice that the co-op is giving them. Mm-hmm. The, um, you know like, hey, we've analyzed your soil, we know what what the right soil is, uh, what the right seeds are for your soil type. It becomes a a, a big threat. so now right. what what where's your idea here?' you're, you're saying
0: uh, well, uh, I think on the uh, it was mainly just identifying where there's most likely marketing slash or like creative uh, business development need coming forth.
1: Uh, I, I th- and what you're describing i think uh w- the way that ag recognizes it as is a problem of succession planning yeah. so they've built these amazing institutions right they are uh, like unparalleled the rest of the business world does not have the same institutions that ag does mm-hmm. but the problem is they don't have anybody to pass these things on to so you have a co-op that's being run by the same 80-year-old men that were running it when they were 50 years old, right? right? So they're now 30 years older, and they're not staying up with the technology. And they do, And then they're saying, we don't know. There's nobody for us to hand it down to. We don't right. really know. And that, I think, is one of the biggest opportunities right now in, in agriculture. And it's also one of the biggest threats to agriculture right now. If they don't figure out how to pass those uh, co-ops down, it right. will only be greater and greater um, centralization and less, less diversity.
0: Right. But I see uh, – so there's a – similar to the co-op side, I also see it on the manufacturing side. So I don't, uh, I don't know how many years ago this was. A couple of years ago, uh, Walmart came in, and they did a uh, – they basically decided to produce their own dairy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you heard about that. No, keep going, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is my world. So yeah. okay, Go on. <laughs> So they, uh, well, you think about, so on the retail side, uh, if you're Walmart or if you're Kroger or Amazon or any of these guys, you start thinking, all right, uh, well, we've got the money. We want to expand. We want to, like, increase our, you know, like, make our shareholders happy. How do we keep growing uh, if we've totally tapped out these markets? And then you look back in your supply chain, you start asking the question, well, could we? Could we manufacture like some of the products that we currently sell? So like the great value like milk or whatever, Walmart came back. Uh, they they pretty much purchased their own manufacturing facility. Their uh, processing facility, right? Their yeah. processing mm-hmm. facility for that type of product. Um, I can't quote. I can't remember if they like completely annihilated all their vendors that they used in the past. But uh, I want to say it was Dean's Milk that got screwed in that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, this has definitely happened. So we had uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago a young woman who their family produces the chicks yeah. that then go to become broilers for Costco. So, like, that vertical integration. And Walmart and the dairies has an interesting thing because dairies, unlike a lot of other things, have an upper maximum on how much um, milk you can produce per square mile right so you you like because you have all this manure you have to get rid of and if you have to truck the manure further and further away it becomes more expensive you only have so much hay so um there there are some interesting quirks to it but like all of the chicken that is purchased right now those the the chicken that you're eating their parents eggs were produced and owned and and uh contracted out a year and a half ago and that whole chain is owned by tyson or whoever else is producing it and uh dairy that you're totally right like when dean um got uh their their contract canceled from walmart right this is the largest grocer in the united states they were like oh god we're we're all dead we're like what are we right and the and
0: the cat like that was part of that story was all the uh I guess cow cattle farms or the milk farms uh, pretty much went out of business. Some of them were able to stay around, but for the most part, that's your only client, your only form of income. And then you're scrambling to, uh, I guess, get another contract that size. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and 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 like, that's exactly
1: right. Like processing facilities, like if you've been producing all this milk and then there's nobody to buy that milk, you can't just like turn off the milk spigot, right? It right. just keeps like, right. it's, it's yeah. like a hose that you can't shut down. Yep. And then that causes all sorts of problems. And so then those cows become a real liability. So then you go cull the herd right. and then now you have less cows <laughs> and it, it gets all sorts of uh, problems. But I, to your point, all the way back at the beginning, yeah, unless you, somebody has given you an entry into this market, you don't even know that this exists. Like Correct. you don't even know that these people have problems that some, that, that your work c- could somehow help solve. Right. And, uh, but I, I've never heard anybody figure out a way to brute force their way into this. And I'm really impressed with it. You've got an <laughs> idea on it because like, yep. I wouldn't know about grain co-ops if I didn't work an egg.
0: Well, you know, and I think the, you talk about the brute force part. So when you look at it from their supply chain standpoint, it's all about just figuring out those keywords that are going to, or those key phrases that are the, how do I say this, uh, where their most pressing need is. What, what's their biggest challenge? What's their biggest headache right now? And there's not an easy way to do it. that really is just, uh, I'm going to do a SWOT analysis on this entire industry and I'm going to learn the entire industry. And uh, I told the port that and uh, I got, I kind of laughed at that. Like they're like, they uh, was they didn't laugh at it. They just said it was, highly like it just seemed highly unlikely and I can I can understand where a client or like any organization would look at that and be like so you're telling me you're just gonna come in and teach yourself transportation logistics freight and everything and understand it I was like yes like that's what I do that's like probably my I'd say one of my biggest strengths that I bring to the table so the uh um I mean I have the I'm kids, single, so I do have a significant amount of time <laughs> on my hands. So I do have, I have that going for me right now, but, um, I do, uh, so, uh, I don't think I can speed read, uh, but I, I read pretty fast. And, uh, the other aspect, I've just gotten really good at asking the right questions and knowing how to teach myself just about any topic as fast as possible. So, um, I'll read entire textbooks. I'll basically go the route of you know if i were going to go to school for this i'll figure out the tracks uh um so like right now now that i understand that chemical manufacturing is like the most prospect like prospective group to go after for the america central port uh working on understanding the uh petrochemical supply chain uh have already broken it down into the actual chemical bases and figuring out what these chemicals produce on the back end so uh, all your different type of polyurethanes and all the different materials that go into that and really understanding those products. So if I, if I can understand that and I can understand where the business opportunity is for these manufacturers, then I can speak directly to, Hey, I can solve a problem that you have. I can solve a problem and be like, so then our conversation is less about, um, you know, we have warehouse space available or we have, space for you to grow, and I'm leaving it up to them to decide they're going to grow, I get to change my messaging and say, hey, uh, I notice that your market's growing and that there's opportunities in these markets for this type of product, and you're going to need a facility that can produce at this scale. This is like one of only maybe four in like a 500-mile radius. That's where our message becomes. And when you can say that instead of the latter, typically your engagement goes up. Man, that is ingenuity. As you think about, uh,
1: you know, we both did, uh, communications, both studied in school. What do you, how would you change, uh, what students are taught to make them better capable (laughs) to do what you're doing?
0: Um, you know, a lot more on, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, entrepreneurial thinking. Uh, but I go back to, uh, and not just for us, I, I sat in, you talk about networking. I'm pretty proud of this one. Um, So, uh, I wanted to know more about the NGA in terms of like them coming to St. Louis and what they would be interested in. So say say what the NGA is, uh, national geospatial agency. And I wanted to know what they were, uh, who they'd be looking for from a contract basis. In other words, what companies are they going to want to work with? And what are the stipulations for them from maybe, uh, the cybersecurity standpoint? Like they're not just going to hire any software company. Like they have to match, the levels of security needed to work with the you know the National Geospatial Agency. So I was looking for events, I got lucky, um, found one for free, it's at Georgetown in DC. Uh, it's called Calaris, and it's an intelligence conference. Legitimately, all the intelligence community is there. And this, this a couple years ago, it was hosted by the NGA. So I met the executive director, the head of HR, head of operations, and the head of analysis, uh, as well as, um, uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, I I still have his card. He told me, like, he gave me his title, and then, so my sister, my older sister works very high level with the FBI, and she told me later, she's like, you you met someone that, like, maybe, like, like very, very few people in their career working at the NGA will, like, ever meet. Um, But, Through all that, like I learned, I can't remember how I got on this topic, but um, I just, I I learned what like they were actually looking for. I mean, it's kind of, I already said it, but it's uh, like we have stipulations from a cyber standpoint. Uh, You have to be like at this high grade. Like it's not, we're not going to be able to take a bunch of St. Louis companies and just automatically expect to get contracts with the NGA. You're going to have to go through whatever that uh, I mean I'm I never not, took a, a business development um, class when I was in school,
1: but you think right. about like more than fifty percent of your work as as a communications person or as a strategist is, is 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 actually finding the client, right? right That's right. and and in fact like that's that's what the client ends up paying you for is your ability to find them and then produce the work for them.
0: So that, uh, that brings me back to what, why I got on the NGA topic. So here in the uh head of uh, analysis, so like she manages the 400 analysts for the NGA uh say to a group at Georgetown University. It was asked the same question like what what do we need from our talent going forward? And everyone on this panel including her, you had someone from DARPA, someone from the CIA, like they all said it unanimously was critical thinking. We cannot stress it enough. We need critical thinking. So on the business end or on the, on the national security end, what that basically means is it's like the nine, it's preventing 9-11 equation, right? We need people that can look at a ton of data, a ton of you know all these data points and look for the thing that they weren't taught to look for. Like it's not textbook. There's no syllabus for this. Here, here's all this stuff. Now figure it out and problem solve. And we need you to do that on a regular basis. On the business side, I mean, it's it's a lot less scary than preventing 9/11. But uh, it really is looking at it from more of an entrepreneurial standpoint, and not thinking, oh, I had like so. I mean, everybody you, has
1: access to Google Maps, right? Everybody has right. the ability to look down and see the b- white boxes from, the, and, and yet nobody does. And so,
0: I mean, it's incredibly time consuming and it, it takes a lot of, you know, like just super focused effort and knowing that, uh, um, yeah, you're, uh, yeah, I really just come back to that type of creative entrepreneurial thinking and that your, your time is not wasted. Like you're, Uh, I guess being more mindful with how you use your time and the difference from um, how do you call it? Like, I I call it like return on investment based, like time management. So, understanding exactly what, whatever you're doing in this activity and how that's going to impact your bottom line, uh, not just staying busy. I think that's
1: a great point, man. That I think uh, trying to think about. Yes, this may take a really, really long time, but if it does pay out, the payout will be X, and right. so I can I can make that justification rather than I think the the typical sensation that people have when they're working in a corporation is um, I've got to be busy doing something, and that that the it should be a linear thing. I should be able to see I put this much work in, I get right. this much output in in a very short time frame.
0: Right, and you know I I look at you know take the port um, i remember when i got interviewed and kind of what i told them later on was they asked like so what about social media can you do social media for us and i first first answer was why and they're like what do you mean why and i go well what's your outcome is your outcome to generate leads and prospects to fill your warehousing because i'm not engaging with your like a ceo of a petroleum company through facebook like i mean i guess i technically could but it's not going to be, like, the best use of my time. Not and to then, mention, dude, you're- I'm so happy to hear
1: you say this. Like, that was such a – like, I understand. It was just, like, for a long time, companies were like, no social media, no social media, yep. no social media. Oh, now everybody's doing it, and so therefore we must too. But if you're making bolts, you know, like, you're not, not going to find your next customer that needs, right. you know, the, the 31CX bolt. For, uh, on social media you're going to find him doing doing some other strategy than well, social media it, you,
0: you taught you bring up bolts we had a uh, so we did a around the port we do these roundtable discussions we'll bring in manufacturers throughout the region and just talk workforce talk their problems and try and see if we can't solve any of them for them because uh, we like to connect people to other people but uh, St. Louis screw and bolts GM uh, made the comment uh, SIU was in the room and they asked the same question like what can we do to make better students and he goes when I went to school, all I remember was like working on like case studies for the Fortune 500, as though you had a hundred billion dollar marketing budget. What do you do when you have a thirty thousand dollar marketing budget? You know, like I need pe- I need people I can hire that under that can work with can work with like super yeah. constraints. And uh, yeah, I thought that was a good point.
1: Man, I think you should be uh, you should be teaching. I think this is really important. Um, so we're gonna wrap up, but before yeah. we do, I had thrown in uh, into your mind the concept of the Peter Thiel paradox. I don't okay. ask everybody this, yep. but uh, people that have unorthodox thinking, they're the right <laughs> ones to ask. So the Peter Thiel paradox, for anybody that doesn't know, for yep. your refresher, it's what is one thing that you believe is true that almost no one agrees with you on. And uh, the reason it's a paradox is because if you say something that people already agree with, you've failed, yep. and then if you say something that nobody agrees with, now you've got to talk your way out of this uh, this uh, corner that you've put yourself in. So do you have a Peter Thiel paradox?
0: I mean I think I do based on you giving me that premise before. I'll just say it you, you, you can you can be the judge of that right um, it's basically it's it's around the idea that manufacturing needs to come back to the United States. And I know that I'm not the only one that thinks that. There's obviously quite a few people that do, but it's never really defined. So it's this idea of can we ever compete with China, India, and your other developing countries when it comes to manufacturing? And my point is that I think the United States really needs to focus on basic human needs based industries for our economic plan moving forward. And when I call basic human needs industries, I've thought about this for myself too in growing business is what industries can we focus on to be resilient? So in other words, no matter what's going to happen, uh, natural disaster, economic collapse, whatever it may be, what, what industries are always going to thrive um, and which ones are always going to have demand going forward? And I looked at, uh, this came really came back from the how to feed the world by 2050 concept and the demand for food concept. So demand for food, you're also going to have demand for fiber energy, and pretty much every basic human need area so think of like maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, and apply it that way so as you see a uh, population increase across the world as well as like increasing incomes um, you're going to need food water energy all these things Um, and i think the united states really needs to bolster those uh, (laughs) industries and so we do
1: have it with food, we, and we, we have it with energy. We,
0: we have it with food, but the thing with food, is, and I see it, this is where, the to me, the biggest threat with food is transportation and our, our lack of infrastructure on transportation. So if like our biggest competitive edge with other countries, say like Brazil, on the food production standpoint, is that our infrastructure is significantly greater than theirs. Like yeah, and they, roads, if they want to get rivers, their grain
1: I, into the ocean to be able to Correct. transport it. they have to cross a mountain and it basically if, they
0: have two roads into the but if you look at their uh like their commodity price i mean i'm not a commodity trader but the last time i looked at their commodity prices are not that far off from the united states so if they inc- like if if they had a massive boost to their infrastructure and everybody says oh it's not going to happen because there's too much corruption in brazil and it's like well what if they have an if They have a nice little partner called China come in and say, you know what, we'll build your roads and bridges for you. Uh, I think that'll become a threat to the United States. And and it's not just Brazil, that's any other market that can potentially compete with us on an agricultural side. So yes, I 100% agree that we have a strong foothold in agriculture, but unless we like continue to massively upgrade our infrastructure and keep that edge, uh, I think that that's a huge threat. What would you prioritize
1: in an infrastructure? I mean, they're doing a $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill. This seems um, to be so large that the human mind cannot even wrap their minds around it. But what would you prioritize in an
0: infrastructure upgrade? Man, I'm not the right person to ask. I'd say Bill Stallman, our engineer, would be a perfect person (laughs) to talk to about that. Um, Yeah, I'm all
1: about making sure the Mississippi River is is uh, well utilized. That yeah. people have no concept because we don't we don't treat it like the Amazon right. or the Nile, but it is one of the great waterways, you know, in in all of the world. And right. and we, I think, I don't want to say, yeah, I don't. I think it's not that people take it for granted; it's that people have no idea it's it even exists or what right. it can do.
0: And I I think that that would probably be one. of, I mean, it's biased because obviously we're on the Mississippi River, but uh the fact that i know what would happen if they closed so i think it's the threat uh the threat of doing nothing or the threat of loss more than the opportunity of gain and i know that kind of sucks but um your your threat of loss if you don't fix the lock and dam system like those lock and dams like were built in the 20s and 30s uh there's a lot of maintenance problems on them uh, I'd say a full upgrade of that. But also you took it you look at like container on barge being introduced as a service, uh fully maximizing the use of the river system to the nth degree that we possibly can. Um I'd say that that would be a large one. Well Alex,
1: this has been a very interesting if somebody wanted to uh get a hold of you to talk through your um ability to problem solve, how would one go about getting a hold of you?
0: Um well, uh, I think you can just go to my website, you go to, uh, name my company is never industries. So that's N E V E R com. And just real quick, uh, cause I always get asked, why'd you, uh, why'd you use a negative to name your, uh, your company? And, uh, It's just uh, I needed a reminder to uh, never give up on a regular basis. So that's basically what that's named for.
1: Man, I think that's a cool name. I think that's that's a very memorable one. All right, Alex, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Pete. (laughs)